0: The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We
1: are Irish Life.
0: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I spoke to a group of Irish Times journalists about the big corporate stories of the day. Cliff Taylor and Joe Brennan gave me the lowdown on AIB's intention to float, while Barry Halloran and Mark Paul talked about Ryanair's profits, the mercantile pub row and two interesting court cases on different sides of the Irish Sea. Don't forget you can download this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. We're going to begin with AIB and joining me in studio are Cliff Taylor of The Irish Times and Joe Brennan, our markets correspondent. And Joe, you've been covering this uh, story for the past couple of days. The Minister for Finance uh, finally pressed the button on Tuesday after the Cabinet meeting and he announced uh, an intention to float AIB. What exactly does that mean?
1: Yeah, so um, after the Cabinet uh, meeting, uh, the Minister of Finance took a briefing from a number of uh, big investment banks that have been advising uh, the government on its... uh, uh, ownership of AIB in recent times and they decided now is the time to proceed with uh, an IPO of the company. So they came out last night at nine o'clock with an intention to float uh, announcement that basically um, alerts the markets and sets into in, in train a, a series of events that will lead hopefully to the IPO of the bank in about a month's time. So Immediately, you have a number of banks uh, that have been advising the government and AIB on this. We'll go out and start courting uh, all kinds of investors. International investors, yeah. Ideally, how many roughly? They'll have to go to to hundreds. Oh yeah, easily hundred plus. I mean, it's a big chunk. And it's all this around is, the
0: world, not just in all around the world. So you're Frankfurt. It's
1: all around the world. Frankfurt, London, New York. This is by even by European standards, this is a big IPO. It's a three. It's expected to raise up to three billion. It is the biggest in Europe uh, that we've seen so far this year, and one of the biggest in Europe we've seen in the last few years. So it's a fairly decent chunk. It'll need a number of investors. So they will be courting hundreds of investors over the next over the over the next few weeks. In those few weeks, they'll get a view as to what the market and what investors see as being a realistic price for this bank. Um, it's returned to profit in, in, in the last few years. It still has issues. It still has the issue that while its a level of bad loans were £29 billion back in 2013 at the peak, that was like for every three euros that were out, one euro had a problem. So it was a massive. uh, It was a massive figure, and it remains a large figure. It's it's under nine billion now, but by European standards, it's still a high a high figure. Uh, The bank did return to profit back in in, in, in 2014 but up until now profits have been flattered to an extent by the bank releasing some of the billions of euros of provisions that they took in in the downturn.
0: There are shares trading in AIB at present on the ESM the junior market in Dublin and a lot of people out there will be thinking I'm going to pile in this is the time to buy it Uh, forget all of this Investor Roadshow and so on I'm going to pile in right now.
1: Yeah People who are doing that probably haven't been listening to the Minister for Finance for the last number of years. Um, AIB, when it uh, was effectively taken over by the government in 2010 and additional money was pumped in in 2011, only 0.2% of the bank has been freely traded. Um, it's, immediate-
0: actually, yeah, it's actually a bit less now, I think, because they slightly. have to- preference shares, we won't go into the technicalities, but yeah. there were some preference shares changed into actual shares and given to the government. So I think it's 99.9% of the stock is now owned by the government. Yeah. So it's a very, very small...
1: Yeah, 0.2%, 0one 0.2% of the bank is, is, is tradable. Um, immediately after the, uh, the, the last recap of 2011, you had a lot of small investors. They probably looked at the AIB... Actual share price so the Bank of Ireland share price and weighed one against the other without realizing how many billions of shares were out there outstanding and At one stage you had AIB uh, which was partly responsible for the government being pushed into an international bailout, been having a, a nominal market capitalization of sixty billion plus euros enough to wipe out. The, uh, the, the amount of money that the government actually borrowed. It wasn't worth that. That had it at as, as one of the top five banks in Europe. This is at a time when the bank was losing uh, billions of, of euros.
0: So anybody who's buying shares in AIB <laughs> right now on the Dublin market...
1: Yeah, um, I mean... Don't I think do it, you, essentially. And that's if, the advice from the Minister of Finance and it's been the advice from the bank for some time. For some time. And the bank um, highlighted, in fairness of the bank, going back two, three, four years, the bank was saying, look at," it. it was saying in very kind of a bank type language, it was saying, look at the market is, is valuing this company at six, seven times uh, book value when European peers are only being valued at one, uh, one times book value. If that, go figure. Yeah. Okay. Now, Cliff, Joe mentioned that we're going to the
0: the states going to net effectively uh, up to three billion euro. That's a fine windfall. And think of all the things uh, we can spend it on: housing, sure. education, hospitals, public transport, new roads. How's the government going to divvy it up?
2: Well, now uh, you know the answer to that, Carol, which is that the EU rules forbid them from spending the, the, uh, the proceeds of the flotation on things like hospitals, roads water infrastructure and so on which
0: so we uh, got screwed uh, by having to bail out the banks in the first place and now when we get some of that
2: loot back yeah. the,
0: the EU is saying no There's sorry mate you can't spend
2: it on yeah, what you want you can't spend it so. on that yeah, I mean I think we need to put it in perspective a little bit the, f- the first thing is that it is our money and it, will, it will go to pay down debt and I know there has been a lot of talk in Leicester House and elsewhere look the debt is 200 billion this is only 3 billion uh, you know what? What use is this? It's a very small chunk of our debt, but it still is a repayment. It still will save interest payments in future years. It's a va- you know, and it's a value for that reason. The other thing I think the other the other relevant point at the moment is that uh, definitely the EU rules are too restrictive. And the government is going to come out with a new capital plan in a few months, and part of that, I think, mm. is going to be a fight with Brussels over how these rules are interpreted. Just tell us a little bit about those rules, because a lot of people just sure they're horrendously they complex. Work. But really, what they what they mean is that spending can only grow at the rate the economy is growing each year. Now, there's a lot of adjustments and pluses and minuses put into that, and um, the and rate at
0: which the Irish economy grows is a bit of a fuzzy area. Isn't it is it, because yeah, of the impact beca- of multinationals yeah, on our yeah, growth. Yeah,
2: yeah. So it's so so it's. It is, it is a movable feast and there's a little more leeway in there for capital spending. You're allowed to average out, it out over a number of years. And if you get the European Investment Bank in to fund projects and get the private sector in to help that as well, there's, there's a bit more leeway there. So yeah. so there are ways that can so be So by explored. and large, roughly
0: speaking, what can the government uh, spend every year what is the fiscal space for for the government each Well, year?
2: The, the fiscal space over the next few years is, is, is very limited. Uh, it's uh, The estimate is it could be in the single hundreds of millions this year, 500 millions the figure I mentioned, maybe a little less given the spending commitments, a billion or a little bit more in in future years, maybe one and a half, two billion. It, the, the space will loosen up a bit, if you like, uh, when we meet our EU borrowing target, which is expected to happen next year. And there's all kinds of other pluses and minuses in there but really the bottom line is the eu is saying look guys this is a once off receipt you're getting from aib you you know this is three billion okay maybe you're going to get some more from selling future sales in future but this is effectively a once-off receipt so you shouldn't be spending it to uh you know to increase your borrowing and and, and to increase the rate of your spending going up this year now the counter argument to that is that we badly need infrastructure uh, which which is the case, obviously, Absolutely. housing, water and the like. We need to spend the money. But really, the, the, the immediate constraint at the moment isn't lack of money. We have a load of money in the Strategic Investment Fund. Markets are very much open to Ireland at the moment. We go out and borrow money very cheaply. Uh, the NTMA always keeps a large pile of cash, it doesn't reveal exactly how much it is on an ongoing ma- basis for strategic reasons, reasons but usually it's 10 billion or more. So the state has a lot of cash to spend. So the where the money is coming from and, and the use of the AIB money really isn't isn't a short term issue here. The, the it's issue just is, an issue of being able to use the money in the first place the issue is of where the, it comes from. The issue is the EU rules get, yeah. getting so them changed. And I, I think, I mean, I think the, the issue is also our ability to plan and deliver projects we saw, for example, uh, you know, how long it's taken to get uh, the Children's Hospital yeah. up somebody and running. Somebody
0: in construction told me recently it's 13 years on average from concept to concrete. Absolutely. Look at the National
2: Broadband Project. Plan. Uh, the government's been messing around on it for three or four years. It's had this auction out with the big players in the market. It's been delayed, delayed and delayed again by this government and the previous government. We just don't seem to be able to get these big projects mm. up and running and but off the surely- ground. So even if we had the money now... What, surely you know, what this we is the time, though, for us to be arguing our case Absolutely. with with
0: the Commission, uh, yeah. you know, with our EU partners, because of Brexit and yeah. Brexit. Yeah. We're, we're the most vulnerable market in the EU to the effects of Brexit, yeah. and surely now is the Absolutely. opportune time for us to be going yeah. to Brussels and saying, "You've got to give us a break. You've got yeah. to let us yeah. invest yeah. in
2: our." Infrastructure. Michael Noonan yeah. has been has said in a in a recent parliamentary answer. He said, "Look, we've been we've been raising this at every meeting. We've been putting the case forward. Italy got a bit of leeway last year." Ireland didn't benefit from that rule change. But I really think you're right in the context of Brexit. We really need to ramp this up, you know, and drive it home at a European level and say, you know, here's three or four projects. Come up with some funding arrangement for them. Come up with a plan for how they're going to be delivered and and, and go ahead and, and get the clearance for that. I think, I think that's absolutely essential. But I do think we shouldn't c- confuse that with the, with the AIB sale. I think the important thing with the AIB sale is to sell it at the right time to get the most money back for the state. That's yeah. the important thing. And now seems, with the Brexit risks ahead and, and the risks of an economic slowdown, perhaps in Ireland, if there's a hard Brexit, now seems like a good time to me to, to at least get rid of 25%. Joe, is now a good time? Is now a good time to sell 25% of AIB?
1: Just going back to um, the, the point about um, about Brexit and, and, and the, the high level of debt, if you look at the other side, you have the, the likes of the ratings agencies uh, and the likes of Moody's have been fairly strong in the fact that the 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 level of irish debt at the moment because of brexit because ireland is such a, a an open economy they would argue that that's all the more reason why you need to bring down the the overall levels of debt. So it's it's it, that complicates factors a bit. Is now the right time? Well, if you looked at mar- banks, say six seven months ago, no one would have believed that we'd be in a position right now where you would be uh, attempting to float uh, aib. Banks across Europe uh, were worried about the likes of Deutsche Bank. They were if you go back eighteen Italian months, Bank.
0: the Minister of Finance was talking very confidently of uh, floating
1: AIB in 2016. But the market was shot this time last year. Yeah. Um, and it's it's only in the last, it's only in the last, say, what six, seven What about the UK months.
0: election? I mean, that surely could derail this whole thing. If I mean, Jeremy Corbyn and Labour seem to be on the march in the polls. If they pull off a surprise result, they might not get into Downing Street, but they might do enough so that there's a hung parliament. Who knows what effect that might have on markets?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think that um, originally uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May, the whole reason why she decided, uh, did a flip-flop in terms of whether to go for an election or not, was because she believed she'd be able to get a greater majority, to have a stronger hand when it came to Europe to negotiate Brexit. we'd have a clearer kind of... Uh, pathway towards towards Brexit, and that would be kind of market friendly, and it certainly was perceived as so uh, by international markets. Um, more recently, obviously, we saw the the YouGov predictions today on the back of uh, their latest polling, showing that uh, not only could they lose uh, twenty seats, but actually the end the Conservative Party could end up with a uh, with a sixteen uh, short sixteen seats to to have an overall majority. Now, the markets have wobbled a bit today uh, so that um, that sterling came off a bit against the dollar it came off earlier it was down about 0.7% against the dollar you saw that uh, European banks were down slightly but uh, overall it's taking it in its stride at the moment uh, if it does emerge that, uh, that there is a hung parliament you can be sure that that would play into the, the, the final discussions as to whether uh, A. the pricing of AIB and whether it will actually go ahead Yeah.
0: Now a couple of things that punters are going to be uh, interested in there is a retail offering although it's quite restrictive and a, a lot of people might be mulling whether they should be buying AIB shares or not. Tell us about the, the, the potential potential. Uh, for a retail offering?
1: Yeah, so it's not like, um, I think we'll all remember, or most people remember, back in 1999 when Aircom was floated uh, and it was widely marketed uh, to to, uh, to to investors. It was a massive kind of retail offering, they were calling it. Um, since then, there have been kind of uh, elements of government, uh, flotations of, of of state companies, uh, such as um as Air Lingus back in two thousand and six, where there was an element set aside for for small shareholders, but they had to go through stockbrokers and they had to have had an account with stockbrokers, and there had to be there was a minimum amount that they could invest. This time round, uh, the the minimum amount that an investor can put can put into to AIB is ten thousand, and they must go through what they call an intermediary, which is a, a local stockbroker that is affiliated with with the deal. But do you actually have to demonstrate a track record in trading equities? Not necessarily, no. You can actually set up a, an account uh, with one of the stockbrokers. Execution should, only? Uh, ideally, you should seek some sort of advice, if you would, particularly if you're someone who has never invested before. Mm, okay. And the other
0: issue that people are going to be wondering about is, does this open the floodgates to the government's salary cap being abolished and to AIB executives being paid bonuses or long-term incentives?
1: Well, the government has been quite clear that it doesn't. Um, but I... Would imagine, and certainly you'd hear evidence from uh, from some market participants that this is an issue for for shareholders. Um, for investors. Big investors, big investors like to see management, uh, their interests aligned with that of, uh, of, of 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 top management. Um, and you saw there recently. Um, Bank of Ireland, obviously, is is not state controlled, but it doesn't have a, a, an incentive plan in, in place either. And you s- you saw recently that uh, Glass um, Lewis. Uh, one of the um, one of the the major proxy advisors to international investors, highlighting that it is a concern for them that remuneration in Bank of Ireland, even though it is low by by uh, international standards, the fact that there is no element to which performance is linked to pay is a concern for them. So they would like to see that tied somewhat. But at the moment, it's a conversation politically that we're not in a situation in Ireland where we can even go there.
0: Mm. Cliff, the other thing that people want to know is.
1: Are well, what
0: taxpayers want to know is: Are we going to get our twenty point eight billion euro bailout funds yeah. from
2: well, AIB? I know what time frame. Sure, yeah, AIB make the point they've already paid. I think over over eight billion in fees and 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 dividends. Now you could argue whether some of those fees are in fact pay, you know paying back money, or just or just 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 paying the state for 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 the use of money and for and for the guarantee. Whether that is in fact a payback or not, you know, in terms of hard cash selling the shares. Uh, the float looks likely to value the the bank at about 12 billion uh, if there's an uplift in the next few years uh you know maybe the total value we might we might we might get back from the share sales would be 15 and aib has paid dividends in the meantime so i suppose over time we might we might get the money back uh, and that is important for the state because um the overall cost of the bailout was was about sixty four billion, and really, I suppose you need to divide it into two bits. One was the money paid into Anglo and Irish nationwide about thirty five billion, which we're never going to see again. Uh, we might get a few billion back from the IBRC liquidation, but that but that's it. So that money is gone, and that is the long term cost to us of the bailout. Then there's the money that was put into what's called the surviving banks, Bank of Ireland, AIB. And uh, yeah, permanent right. TSB, you know, there's a good chance we we'll get we we'll get most or all of that back, depending on how you count it. Now, of course, getting the money back, you know, doesn't uh, doesn't pay you back for for the damage that was caused to the wider economy uh, f- from from the banking crash uh, and the huge problems it created, and the huge opportunity cost to the state of of putting money into to bail out the banks. But nonetheless, it is important for our you know for our national debt to keep chipping away, to keep getting yeah. this money, to keep getting this money back. Uh,
0: and finally, Joe has the bank given any indication as to when it might be back in majority
1: private ownership at least let's say 51% privately owned um, Obviously it's, it's a decision ultimately for, for the government and placing a 25% stake and actually having a having a listing on a main uh, stock market gives them the opportunity this is the big step gives them the opportunity the government an opportunity to kind of place smaller uh, amounts uh, drip feed into the market over the coming years Um uh, I think, you know, speaking to the, the chief executive there um, uh, earlier on today, he says, obviously, it's, 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 it's in the gift of the government to decide uh, when uh, you see the, the bank in majority state hands. But, um, you know, certainly given the, the liquidity in the market and the appetite in the market, it is conceivable that you could see uh, it majority uh, owned by private investors in the next three years.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Joe Brennan and Cliff Taylor. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be talking about Ryanair's profits and the mercantile pub. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much
2: we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to IrishLifeEmpower. or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015.
0: Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can download this podcast on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. I'm joined for the second half of the show in studio by Barry O'Halloran, Irish Times business reporter, and by Mark Paul, business affairs correspondent with the Irish Times. They've come in to talk about some of the big corporate stories of the week. Barry, we might start with you and Ryanair
3: and its full-year profits. Okay. Well, the full-year profits were pretty good. They were one point. They were just shy of one point three two billion, and um, they're up around six percent, I think, on revenues that rose only about two percent. Um, and uh, so they must
0: be squeezing the cost base.
3: They're, they're yeah, they're continuing to squeeze the cost base, and you've got to remember that they're they're adding more. They're adding more planes. They're adding more capacity, so they have to keep cutting their tickets. Now they cut average fares last year by thirteen uh, percent on average. Your Ryanair passenger paid forty one euro. Um, for their flight last year was 13 percent less than last year. Or right, 30, less than the I, I previous year. I presume
0: that doesn't correct me if I'm wrong, but that doesn't include airport taxes and all of that kind of stuff. Well,
3: no, they absorb all those costs. They, they, that's the, the my understanding of that figure is that it's the headline. Figure. That is it's a net costs it, to the passenger. You pay. Okay, yeah, it's it's what you pay because that all those costs are absorbed into into your fare when you And
0: what it. does Michael O'Leary have to say about the future?
3: OK, well, they are looking at um, profits next year or in the, in the, the, the current financial year, which ends March 31st, 2018, of I think it's 1.42 to 1.45 billion, that kind of space. Uh, a little bit less than what analysts were expecting, um, but not far off. You know, not it, it's not very much out of kilter either. Um, Is this part of his under-promise over-deliver strategy of many years? Um, I suppose it looks like that but I, what you've got to say for them is that they've been pretty consi- they they are pretty consistent down through the down through the years their guidance their profits generally fall in line more or less with what their guidance says this year's are the the 2017 profits if you like were actually at the lower end of of the um the final uh, guidance that they gave last October so it's it um he probably didn't sort of under-promised by a vast amount this time around. Okay, and of course
0: the guidance can change during the years to get a bit more visibility. It can, yeah. And it, and it, so in,
3: f- in fact, what tends to be the position is that the guidance tends to be more accurate when they come out with it at the half-year stage because obviously they have a, a much better picture of how the best part of the year, the, the spring and summer, went for them. And they have um, a good deal of visibility down into sort of the third quarter and possibly the fourth quarter.
0: Okay, what did you have to say about Brexit?
3: Um, well, Michael O'Leary is adamant um, that um, the British are taking completely the wrong approach about Brexit. Um, he believes that Europe is going to play hardball, that Europe has every reason to, hard, to play hardball because it doesn't want to encourage other people down the Brexit route. And not only that, that Britain is essentially going to the card table without any aces and because Europe is holding all of them. Um, his theory, that one of his theories in relation to aviation is that... Um, they could well, Britain could well find itself in a position in early twenty nineteen where there is um, where it is likely to have to leave the EU Open Skies Agreement. This is the basically the the agreement that effect opens the EU skies to all EU registered airlines, and he he believes that that could potentially cause chaos. That there may even be a period where it will not be possible. For flights it between, it seems the hard EU. to believe, that, doesn't it? Really. Well, th- this is, and when you say that to him, he he says, and that's what that that's what uh, politicians, that's what the like of um, the the tra- the British Transport Secretary Chris Grayling is saying, and um, they're all saying, well, it's inconceivable um, that the EU will allow this to happen, and he's saying, well, like if it does happen, do you have a plan B, and why do you think it's inconceivable? And he then he then says, well, they have no answer to those questions, mm-hmm. and he says that's why. He's worried that this is going to happen. Uh,
0: Because obviously it it hits back at the EU as well, because, I mean, EU carriers fly into the UK just as much as uh, carriers fly out of the UK to the EU.
3: Yeah, and I I kind of quizzed Ryanair, I quizzed quizzed Michael O'Leary's colleague, David O'Brien, a bit more on that yesterday. Because, yeah, like say, for instance, Lufthansa has around 6 to 8 percent of its business. Uh, in Britain, I think is
0: going to London, and I Airlink mean. is going to London. It's one of the busiest yeah. routes in the world.
3: But the the issue there is that it's likely that their theory, the Ryanair theory, if you like, is that. um is that the likes of Lufthansa and Air France have more clout in Brussels and that they're quite happy to see business to Heathrow withering on the vine because that will eventually feed back into their airports in, in the likes of Paris and in North the likes of, of, of Munich and okay. Frankfurt.
0: Now, there was some potentially good news for passengers uh, for the coming year in the sense that Ryanair has all these new aircraft coming on stream, a lot more seats to fill, and this might drive down even further the cost of uh, the average cost of a Ryanair flight.
3: Yeah, they're talking in terms of, of 5 to 8% this year, which if you, like, uh, on the basis of... Do the math of my, on that for as Well, Well, the, the, the back-of-the-envelope calculation, if you like, uh, is that you'd be paying in and around a little bit more than €38 Euro on average for your flights with Ryanair over the coming months as a result of that. Now, obviously, that'll fluctuate. I mean, if you want to buy a flight to Spain, uh, at the, height, it, of the at summer, height of the summer, it's a different that's, that's yeah. going to fly. But you know, you'll probably end up okay. paying a tenner for flights in January and the like. You know, that
0: right? Kind of what day. about Cheltenham? Have you checked out the Cheltenham flights yet?
3: Not just yet, but I I did manage to fly to Cheltenham last March for twenty euros. So I'm betting it'll be roughly the same this year.
0: Excellent, good stuff, good stuff. Okay, Mark, we're going to come to you now, and this long running, long bubbling mercantile pub row. Uh, I think when we had you on the podcast uh, recently, you called it a good old fashioned bar brawl, uh, but it's been brought to a conclusion. There was a a settlement which was notified to the court this week.
4: That's right Jed. There was three different legal actions arising out of this bar brawl, but they've all been settled, they've all been withdrawn. Um, just tell
0: us a little bit about the Mercantile Group first, just to refresh our Merc- the, memory.
4: The Mercantile Group, up until Monday, before Monday, the Mercantile Group was um, was basically two pub groups combined: the old Mercantile Pub Group and Capital Bars, which uh, effectively owned some of the biggest super pubs in Dublin, the likes of Cafe on St. Those two groups merged together um, about eighteen months ago. Um, Frank Leeson brought the, the, the Mercantile Bars into it, and um, a consort, a U.S. Irish consortium uh, comprising Danu Investment Partners, which is the founders of Satanta Sports, um, are involved in that, and a couple of uh, uh, U.S. Irish businessmen. They brought capital bars into the group, um, but within a year, um, the, the 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 marriage started to fracture, and um, 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 there was a huge falling out between Frank Leeson on one side and. Um, mostly Morris uh, or uh, Michael Breslin on the other side, one of the, one of the US Irish investors, um, and and they started all both sides started to look for a way out, um, and it, it 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 blew up in three different legal actions which were ongoing, uh, and effectively what they've decided to do in order to the the, the divorce settlement, if you like, is uh, is an asset split, and um, they split the group back up again, but not along the same lines that it was originally joined. Yeah, so uh, tell us about the settlement. It was agreed uh, effectively
0: this week. Uh, which parties are going which way and what assets are they taking with them? Well,
4: in effect, uh, the... what will remain known as the Mercantile Group which was originally the Capital Bars Group the US Irish uh, and Danu investors they'll walk off with seven properties and uh, Frank Leeson will walk away with three and um, one will be uh, uh, one will be the lease for one Eastside Tavern that'll be sold uh, for a nominal sum uh, apparently and one of the properties in the group has already been sold uh, which is Held of the Moon um, so what was originally a group of a dozen of some of the biggest pubs in Dublin will now be split into uh, Uh, two groups of three and seven um, uh, with one sold off. Okay, which three does Frank Gleason get to keep? Well, he gets three leasehold properties, um, which are uh, more food properties than pubs. The pub in in his three properties is Farrier and Draper, which is in the Periscore Townhouse Centre. It's a pretty hip place, uh, pretty pretty. Busy weekend spot, but he also gets the Green Hen Restaurant and Marcel's Restaurant. Um, now they're, they're freeholds; he doesn't get any, or they leaseholds; he doesn't get any property assets there. But he does get get those businesses effectively unencumbered. Um, and what he also gets is a couple of pub sites in uh, in North Dublin that weren't part of the the Mercantile Group, but had been put up for security for loans. He he, one of the cases, legal cases, was a four point six million case taken against him by his. Fellow shareholders, um, uh, and and that those loans were secured on pubs in Mulhuddart and Finglas sites. So Frank Leeson gets those, and he gets them unencumbered. Um, and I think one of those sites also comes with a chipper and a betting shop uh, beside it as well. Um, so they're not they're not amazing pubs. Um, they're 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 out in, in uh, uh, suburban locations. Uh, but you know maybe they work as development sites for for, for hospitality yeah. and so on.
0: And in I mean, terms of the seven pubs that are going with Dano and these US Irish investors. Uh, you were talking to them during the week, and you've uh, you've basically been given some information about their
4: investment plans for the future. Yeah, effectively, these seven pubs include some of the the, the archetypal super super pubs of the double market. Cafe on um, is is where they have a leasehold interest in that. They're just currently looking for landlords' consent uh, to spend a couple of million on an upgrade of that, and um, there'll be uh, uh, there'll be quite a major upgrade. Of, um, of opium which will shut for a while and there'll be some money put into Whelan's and also into the George, the Bridey's Bright, Bar uh, which is adjoining the George. But the bulk of the, the 20 million plus that they're going to spend is um, uh, is going to be on the mercantile hotel uh, which is, I suppose, the flagship of the group. It's right in the middle of Dame Street, opposite the, the old, bank. opposite the old Centre Bank. In the middle, it's this is tourism ground zero in Dublin. Uh, and at the moment, it's only got about 27 or 28 bedrooms. They're going to more than triple that to about 100. It's going to cost 15 million euros. They're also going to buy the, 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 the freehold on the building. It's currently owned by a family of investors called the Murray family. Um and they're currently in talks with the Mercantile Group in order to sell the freehold, uh, and uh, and they'll they'll you know this will be this you know as a hotel development in, in in Dublin city centre in the middle of a tourism boom, it uh, seems like a great asset for it to them to get. It's very surprising that 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 Frank Leeson didn't get Whelan's and Opium because those would have been two bars that he would have run for decades. Um, and two of the best-known bars in the south inner city. Well, Whelan's is um, a very popular music venue. Whelan's is a very popular music venue, live music venue too. And uh, Opium, what well, used to be called The Village, well, it used to be a popular live music venue in its own right, more of a nightclub now than a live music venue. Um, but two of the best-known pubs in Dublin City would have been very, very, very closely associated with Frank Leeson. Um, but he's, uh, he's had to give them up.
0: All right, let's take a look, a look at a couple of uh, court stories involving some uh, interesting personalities. In uh, the Irish market, uh, Barry, we might start with you. Uh, Ryanair uh, being in court in Liverpool in relation to some compensation claims that are being coming through from some UK passengers. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, uh, essentially, the the Liverpool County Court ruled this morning that uh, these cases have to be heard uh, uh, in Ireland. There is a the the, the terms tell us about of, the cases first. Okay, all. well, fundamentally, what they are is their passenger compensation for flight cancellation and delays. Um, there's a British um, solicitor's firm, Hughes and Walker, which is taking a number of these, I think about 200, I think, in all. Um, and what Ryanair is saying is you can't take these cases in the UK courts under our terms and conditions. If you want to litigate these cases, you've got to take them through the Irish courts. And the Liverpool County Court this morning in a 27 page judgment um, said, actually, Ryanair is right. the the law supports Ryanair's position on this. So if these people want to go theoretically to continue to sue Ryanair um, they have to uh, go through the Irish courts. But Ryanair is also pointing out that actually you don't have to go to court Um, the, the way the system works is you're supposed to apply directly to the airline for the compensation for delays and cancellations. If the airline doesn't give it to you there is an appeal system and if that appeal system fails it's at that point that you're really meant to litigate and Ryanair have said that look If UK customers go through all those steps and they fail and they then want to litigate, at that point they can litigate in the UK courts because the EU regulations governing this allows them to do it. But if they want to start off by going to court to get their compensation, they have to go through the Irish courts.
0: Right. Okay. sounds like that one is going to run and run. Mark, you've been following a case uh, long running involving the competition body here and a flooring company that won some very interesting uh, projects with multinationals and so forth. But it ended up in the Central Criminal Court. Tell us about that.
4: Yeah, it's a bid rigging case. The first bid rigging case in the history of the state. Bid rigging is, I suppose, a form of price fixing um, um, uh, based around uh, uh, companies agreeing bids in a tender situation. And uh, so we had uh, uh, one company and one individual convicted and sentenced this week for bid rigging. First time it's ever happened. Aston Carpets and Flooring and uh, one of its former directors, Brendan Smith. Um, Now, this is a five-year investigation by the Competition and uh, uh, Consumer Protection Commission. And it arose from a whistleblower um, um, they raided four premises Um. um, um and the investigation took several years. Well, one of the companies that was investigated uh, basically went state's evidence and, and took part in the cartel immunity program. Um. And uh, uh, we've ended up with what the judge himself uh, uh, today admitted were very modest fines. Um, the individual convicted of bid rigging. Uh, uh, and why
0: are they modest? Are they modest because of the legislation or is
4: there another reason well they're modest because they're very small um uh, uh, 10000 euros uh, the company was was fined um, um, and this is now uh, you know this how much could they have been fined what was the maximum up to 5 million right so it was the judge's decision it was it was the judge's decision the 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 the, the, the The legislation allows for fines of up to five million and allows for prison terms um, um, of a couple of years. Did the the judge give any reason for the He did give give, give a rationale. He compared it to a case um, in 2009, uh, the Kelly case in 2009, um, where the total fines in that case were €100,000. And he said that this case was less serious than the Kelly case. Um, now the case that, that that Aston Carpets and Brendan Smith were convicted for involves bid rigging in sixteen different uh, contracts over the course of two years. Um, uh, the, <coughs> it, uh, uh, Aston Carpets would sit down with another company um, called uh, Contract Carpets and Flooring, Contract Carpet Center, and they would um, basically agree what prices to bid for big projects. First, say Google, uh, Mastercard. Dell was another one, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, basically big FDI investors in the Irish economy, multinationals who needed carpets and floors or whatever put in their offices and, and buildings. Uh, and 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 they rigged the bids uh, and they colluded 16 different times, there was evidence of. Um, and, uh, and these are the fines that have turned up at the end of it. This is a five-year investigation, would have cost a hell of a lot of money um, there was a whistleblower. There was somebody who gave evidence uh, under an immunity program. There's actually I, I only discovered what I was researching this case. There's a, there's a thing called the immunity phone. There's a guy who walks around the CCPC, a guy or or, or, or a woman uh, who at all times carries what's known as the immunity phone. It only rings a couple of times a year, and it's, it's h- like a Carlsberg complaints it's, room. It's 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 a cartel immunity phone, and if you are involved in a cartel. Um, it's not a tip line. It's not. It's it, 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 it's an immunity line. If you're involved in a cartel and you have knowledge of a cartel and you uh, you know the heat's around the corner or or, or, or whatever, you just you, you, you ring up the immunity line and and a, a specific phone, a specific handset rings somewhere nice. in the CCPC. So this all came through the immunity phone. It only rings a couple of times a year. But here it's turned up a ten grand fine, a seven and a half grand fine for an individual and a three month suspended prison sentence.
0: Yeah, Barry, you're a man who knows a thing or two about the law. You know the general public. Are generally sceptical about these things. Uh, we saw the Sean Fitzpatrick case involving the ODCe um, effectively collapse last week. The judge dismissing the jury and dismissing the case, and Sean Fitzpatrick walked away uh, an innocent man in the eyes of the law. And now we have this case where, okay, Brendan Smith and Aston Carpets are are convicted, but very small fine handed out and a suspended sentence handed
3: yeah, out. Yeah, and I mean, I suspect that the 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 fine in this case is probably you know, uh, only a fraction of the money made by by bid rigging in the first place. And I, I, maybe it's time to look at the set. Look, this always in the administration of justice in this country, there always seems to be a row about sentencing. But the, I know that sentences in these offences are basically they're supposed to be tied to companies' turnover. And the idea is that you do the maximum damage, you know, that you come in. And if, if a company is caught behaving in this way, which is absolutely shocking, by the way, and. Um, you, you, you inflict the maximum damage on them. And that's clearly not happening. And I think there needs to be tougher. We, we need to get tough on anti-competitive practices in this country. We, there, there's too many of them. And, and for far too long in this country, we, we effectively allow situations where, where cartels grew up. Yeah. Um, and that has to be torn down and people have to get value for money. And people who are investing in this country have to have confidence that they're getting value for money when they're buying carpets and floors and everything else as well. And they can't in a scenario like this. Yeah, okay.
0: All right, gents, we're going to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to Mark Paul and Barry Hallowan. Okay, that's it from Inside Business for this week. I want to thank our contributors, Joe Brennan, Cliff Taylor, Mark Paul, and Barry Hallowan. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.